I will just confess to a collage of emotions right now. It's been a tremendous blessing to be together for four and a half days. I don't know about you, but I can see the close to this great time of blessing forthcoming. And, and so I just can't help but, but be a little bit sad about that. And yet we have this, we have this moment as we sing sometimes. We have this moment. We want to redeem the time. We're going to think this morning again about an attribute of God. It's always a blessing for God's people to focus on Him. And certainly I believe that it's going to be a blessing to us this morning as we again focus on Him. And if I can be an instrument in His hands and and just be used by Him, I'll be very, very thankful that we have this hour to spend together. So I greet you in the name of Jesus. We want His name to be exalted. We want God's Word to be proclaimed in its truthfulness. The Bible says, in purity and simplicity, we want all of those things to happen, but especially we want the Holy Spirit to just anoint this hour that we have together that God might be exalted. Let's turn to the Scripture. I'm going to read about five verses from Exodus chapter 34. We were here for just a moment yesterday morning. Exodus chapter 34. These are words that were proclaimed upon Mount Sinai. And we're going to look in Exodus 34 at verses 10 through 14. Remember we spoke about the covenants yesterday. And here we have that exact term used as we began reading in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 34. This is God speaking. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. For it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break down their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Turn with me then, if you will, to the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. The 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. The Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. We read in Exodus 34 verse 14. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Four verses here. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, 
As the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. I'd like to speak this morning from the title, God is Jealous. God is Jealous. I want to just establish this fact in our minds very clearly at the onset that the God that we serve is a jealous God. Certainly He is holy. Certainly He is true. Certainly He is love. Certainly He is good. And certainly this morning He is also jealous. The God that we serve is a jealous God. The Bible gives us to understand that in clear and unmistakable tones and terms. Numerous times, the Old Testament Scriptures especially speak of the fact that God is jealous. In fact, those exact, that exact phraseology is used at least seven different times in the, in the Old Testament Scripture. And you'll find the thought expressed a multitude of times beyond that. The first time, perhaps, that you'll find the expression that God is jealous is found when God gave the law, the Mosaic Covenant, on Mount Sinai in chapter 20 where we have, of Exodus, where we have the Ten Commandments specified in clarity. God said, as He spoke that second commandment, He said, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, that jealous is the name of God. Jealous is the name of God. It's His name. One of His many names. I would just say, as we think back to that second commandment, and you'll recall the, the Ten Commandments, how they are, and, and the Bible says that, that as God spoke to Moses on Sinai, He said, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. That's commandment number one. Commandment number two was... Thou shalt make unto thee no graven image, neither shalt thou bow down to them, nor serve them. Commandment number three, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And commandment number four, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I think all of those first four commandments give us to understand that God is a jealous God. But He says specifically in the second commandment, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I am jealous. The Hebrew word that's translated jealous into the English language is the Hebrew word kanah. Kanah. It's never used any other time but to just simply state the fact that, that God is jealous. Now there are other kinds of jealousy. Sometimes a, a derivative of that word is used to refer to other kinds of jealousy, but that particular word that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse, verse um, in the second commandment, I think it's in verse 5 perhaps, that particular derivative of the word kanah is only used in reference to God. And it never means anything other than simply the fact that God is jealous. In this 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, these are not the Hebrew Scriptures, these are the Greek Scriptures, but we find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, that God said, or, or that, that Paul says that there is a godly jealousy. 
And Paul says he was a participant in that. He was a partaker of what he refers to as godly jealousy. If there's godly jealousy, I'm going to use logic here a moment, but if there's godly jealousy, then we must understand there is also ungodly jealousy. And certainly the scripture bears that out as well. Paul says, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. That's the kind of jealousy that God has. The Greek word translated here in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 simply means ardent love. Ardent love or filled with tender attachment. So Paul was saying, I have ardent love for you. This godly jealousy is an ardent love. This means that Paul says, I am filled with tender attachment toward you. Now, because there is an ungodly jealousy, it might just be uh, bless us to think for just a moment about what the Bible has to say about ungodly jealousy. I'm going to cite you to one verse. This is found in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 6, verse 34. And the verse says something like this, Jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. This is ungodly jealousy, and it says that jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. In other words, this ungodly jealousy will so consume an individual that, that they, they want nothing more nor less than vengeance. They are just beset on taking vengeance. This is ungodly jealousy as the scripture speaks to us in Proverbs 6 verse 34. I want to quote a verse that does not use the word jealousy in it, but it certainly speaks of jealousy as it refers to the godly jealousy. And this is the word of God given through Isaiah. Isaiah 48 verse 1 says that I will not give my glory to another. This is the words of God. I will not give my glory to another. That gives us an insight into the mind of God and helps us to understand that the God that we serve certainly is a jealous God. It's been challenging this morning as I think about this message because, because really we have had this theme already so very capably developed during the past four and a half days. And it's been touched on a variety of, in a variety of ways on numerous occasions. But I'm thinking especially about Wednesday afternoon when Brother Joe spoke to us about being loyal lovers of King Jesus. Really, if you want to think about the, the essence of that message and the essence of the message this morning, really, they're the same, they, they have the same emphasis. The same emphasis. God is a jealous God. And He wants His people to walk in His ways and His ways alone. That means they're going to be loyal followers of the Lord Jesus. Loyal lovers of King Jesus. Now, as we think about the, the, uh, the title to this message, God is Jealous, I want to break this message down into about three different parts as we've done hitherto. First of all, we're going to, and, and this is going to help us to, to give focus to the thought that, that God is jealous. Our first focus is going to be that God's jealousy focuses us on chastity. 
It focuses us on chastity. The second point is that godly jealous, godly jealousy focuses us on fidelity. And thirdly, godly jealousy focuses us on simplicity. We're going to stick very close to these four verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to look at those four verses and we're going to find those expressions or those, or those truths emphasized as we look at the passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. God, God, God's jealousy focuses on chastity. God's fo- jealousy focuses on fidelity. And God's jealousy focuses on simplicity. Let's think about what it means when we say that God's jealousy focuses on chastity. Verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11 says, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. A chaste virgin to Christ. That is telling us that godly jealousy or God's jealousy will focus on chastity. Focusing on chastity. Now to be chaste, you could use a synonym for that, and that simply means to be pure. When God says that He's a jealous God, and He wants us to understand His jealousy, He wants to walk, He wants us to walk under the umbrella of His jealousy, that means He's wanting us to be chaste. It means He's wanting us to be pure as we walk with Him. Drawing near to God requires chastity or purity. It requires that. James chapter 4 verse 8. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Purify your hearts. I got distracted there for just a moment. Let's just flip to that scripture. Cleanse your... Okay, here we go. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. It might have been a blessing to just turn there, because I want to make a point there, and I'd like for you to look there with me. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Just notice... The emphasis, the the encompassing emphasis that James gives to us there in that particular verse. If we're going to be drawing near to God, if we're going to be in communion with Him, that sweet moment of fellowship, that sweet blessing of fellowship with Him, James tells us that there's at least three focuses that ought to be considered. First of all, we must think about our deeds. We must think about our deeds. And that's why he says, cleanse your hands. What do hands do? Well, hands do. Hands do. He's saying, think about your deeds. Consider your deeds. Give focus to your deeds. The second point he makes is that we must give focus to our emotions. Purify your hearts. Why did God give us a heart? He gave us a heart because He wants us to feel He wants us to feel. And so give focus to your emotions. Give focus to your deeds. Give focus to your emotions. And finally he says, give focus to your thoughts. 
ye double-minded. He's telling us in that expression that it's so easy for the human mind to run in a couple of different directions, opposite directions. And he says, purify your hearts, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. In other words, get your minds in focus. Get your minds in focus. And so, I believe James 4, verse 8, simply tells us that we're to give focus to our deeds, we're to give focus to our emotions, and to give focus to our thoughts. Jeremiah, it is, that makes this expression. And I'm just going to focus on the middle one of those three focuses that were given to us in James 4, verse 8. And that is the heart, the emotions, the heart. The seat of affections. Jeremiah says, and it's often quoted, and it's not quoted often enough. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it, he says. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Let's just stop and think about the fact that because God's jealousy focuses us on chastity, we must look carefully and diligently at our hearts. We sometimes speak about God's creative acts and God's redemptive acts. I use those expressions, and we use them as something separate from each other. And, and to a degree, that's true. God worked in creation for six days, and for 6,000 years, He's been working in redemption. God's rolled up his sleeves. He's stretched out his arm so that man might be redeemed. But I want to just tell us this morning that actually God's work in redemption is still a creative act as well. When God works in redemption, when God works in the hearts of men and women, there is a creative act or a creative aspect to God's work in redemption. I'm going to go to Psalms 51, verse 10 through 12. For the psalmist David, in his repentant state, after he had created that grievous sin, that grieved the heart of God, and caused so much chaos in David's own family, David, in Psalm 51, expresses his repentance, his penitent spirit, and in verse 10, he says like this, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. I want us to understand as we think about the focus that's given there in Psalms 51 verses 10 through 12. The emphasis there is on the spirit at work in the life and the heart of the individual. David's plea was that his heart might be created anew. That he might have a clean heart, a pure heart, a chaste heart. That was David's desire. And if you'll look at those three verses in Psalm 51, you'll find that in every one of those three verses, spirit is mentioned. Create in me a clean heart, O God, David says, and renew a right spirit within me. Renew a right spirit. That's a focused spirit. Renewing a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. 
Now David, David could not foresee the time when the Holy Spirit of God, when God Himself, would come down and reside within individuals. Clay pots, earthly tabernacles. But David writes, because it's inspired of God, and he says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He knew the Spirit of God was at work in his life. That was not at that particular time. Perhaps the indwelling Spirit like we are acquainted with today, but still the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, was working in the heart and the life of David. And so we have the right Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, he makes reference to the free Spirit. Uphold me with thy free Spirit. The liberty that's given The Spirit that liberates us as God works to purify, to cleanse, to make us, to have chaste hearts. God is jealous and God's jealousy focuses on chastity. The right Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the free Spirit. Thinking about the heart still. And there's a verse in the 15th chapter of the Acts that we uh, are rather familiar with and this is the words of Peter in the 15th chapter of the Acts that we're going to refer to and you'll recall the setting here that the the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had been out ministering to to the unbelieving world ministering to the, to the converted uh, uh, heathen peoples and some of the Jewish uh, offspring of, of Abraham as well and, and because there was some question about all of this, it was determined that Paul and Barnabas should go up to Jerusalem and there meet with the apostles. And so we have in the 15th chapter of the Acts, we have the Jerusalem Council. This is a bit of a side, but it's interesting to me, as I look at the, at the consideration that's given to whether or not circumcision and other aspects of the Mosaic Law should be retained in the Christian church. I'm just just fascinated, I guess, by the different methods that were utilized to arrive at truth. You've heard some testimony the last four and a half days. You no doubt will hear some more before we part from each other. Testimony is a blessing. Sometimes people ridicule testimony as, as, as uh, people attempt to arrive at truth. But I want to say to you this morning that it is scriptural to use testimony in presenting the gospel message. Now notice in Acts 15 that Peter, as he begins to speak, he focuses on logic. That's the method Peter uses in trying to arrive at truth. When James speaks... He focuses on Scripture. When Paul spoke, Paul focused on testimony. He testified, he and Barnabas, what great things the Lord had done with, through them as they circulated and spread the gospel message. And so I say this morning that on the basis of Scripture in the 15th chapter of the Acts, we have the examples given of of logic or deductive reasoning perhaps, but logic we'll call it this morning. We have Scripture used and we have testimony used. And they can all be a blessing. 
But we ought to use all of them, and perhaps there's other methods as well, if we're going to present the gospel message clearly. Well, that was a bit of an aside, I said, but let's turn, let's look at verses 8 and 9 as Peter speaks. And he's using logic or deductive reasoning here. And he's telling about how that he went down to the house of Cornelius and God opened the, the, the Holy Spirit working in him, enabled Peter to, to open the door so that the Gentile peoples might be brought in to the church, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness. He's speaking about those Gentile converts. Bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Purifying their hearts by faith. You see, the emphasis is on purity. It's on chastity, and it's driven right to the heart of the matter. Purifying their hearts, and he says it was by faith. Purifying their hearts by faith. (coughs) We must understand from that, that purity in the heart is always a result of faith. Can't be arrived at any other way. Purity in the heart, or chastity in the heart, is because of faith. Genuine, authentic faith. In fact, Jesus said something like that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 in the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are blessed are those who have faith. Those who are willing to embrace the teachings of God. Those who are willing to accept Him, to receive His truth. Blessed are the pure in heart. And it's an eternal blessing because He says, they shall see God. It's so important, if we're going to be focused on chastity, as we think about God's jealousy being focused on chastity, it's so important that we understand the critical element of the Word of God in our lives. The Word of God in our lives. Brother Leslie spoke the other day, maybe yesterday it was, or a day or two ago at least, about the blessing of the Word of God. And I think that most all of us understand the greatness, the the, the great blessing that God has given to us by providing His Word to us. And he spoke about the 119th Psalm and and how that brother uh, just kept right on reading when he got to the end of the 119th Psalm and and it was a rather uh, an amusing account in a way, but, but I want to say, and he's already said this, but I want to say that, that I think that the 119th Psalm is just about as precious a portion of Scripture as there is. I just love to go to the 119th Psalm. In fact, I'm going to take you there in just a few moments this morning as we think about the blessing of the Word of God. And I know there's various ways to count As you look through the verses in the 119th Psalm. But I've tried to look at this uh, a variety of times. And be very careful about how I analyze the 119th Psalm. And, And I believe I can find maybe as many as three verses there in the 119th Psalm. That do not speak of the Word of God. Now the 119th Psalm is broken down into eight verse segments. Which, which, uh, are all subtitled with the names of the Hebrew alphabet. 
I think there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And you can, you, as we turn there in a little bit, you can double check me on that. But if there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 8 verses for each of those letters, that means there's 176 verses in the 119th Psalm. Now, if there's only 3 verses that don't speak specifically about the Word of God, then can't we understand the focus and the emphasis to us in that 119th Psalm? The 119th Psalm starts out like this in verse 1, and it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Does that speak to us about purity? Does that speak to us about chastity? Well, certainly it does. It speaks to those who are undefiled. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Now let's look at the 119th Psalm. And I want to just pull out a few verses there, about three of them, <coughs> at the forefront of the 119th Psalm. We're speaking about the necessity for purity, the necessity for chastity, especially as it's focused on the heart. You know that, know which verse I'm going to go to, but it's the ninth verse of this 119th Psalm. <coughs> We could probably all quote it. And it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Now that's speaking about purity. That's speaking about chastity. That's speaking about our heart. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. As we just focus on the heart for a moment. As we focus on the 119th Psalm and its emphasis. On purity or chastity of heart. Notice in verse 9 that the focus seems to be on freedom. By having our sins forgiven. By being liberated. Freedom. The tenth verse. With my whole heart have I sought thee. That's our focus. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. That's being kept under the umbrella. Of the jealousy of God. Verse 12. Verse 11. <coughs> Thy word have I hid. In mine heart. That I might not sin against thee. That is telling us that we're to be fortified. That's fortification. To hide the word of God in our heart. That we might not sin against him. To simply hide that word there. That we might be fortified. For whatever difficulties. Whatever trials might yet efface us might yet await us in life. Freedom, focus, and fortification emphasized there in, nine, in verses 9, 10, and 11 of the 119th Psalm. Well, certainly we understand that God's focus on jealousy is focused on chastity. Chastity. The second focus that we find in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4, is this fact. And that is that God's jealousy focuses on fidelity. God's jealousy focuses on fidelity. You don't find that word fidelity used explicitly in this passage, but the thought is there. And that thought is given to us in verse 3, when Paul says that his desire, we're going to paraphrase here for a moment, but his desire was that their minds should not be corrupted. Should not be corrupted. In other words, he's telling them that he wanted them to be faithful. 
He wanted them to exercise in fidelity. And fidelity and faithfulness are synonymous terms. And so God's jealousy focuses on fidelity. I believe what Paul is saying here is that we must be careful that we don't become distracted. Don't become distracted. If our minds are corrupted, that means they are led astray. If you're using another version of Scripture besides the King James Version, you might find that right there in your, in your Bible. Other versions translate this verse that way. Led astray or led away. Some of them do. But the point is that we're to not allow ourselves to be led astray. We're to be faithful. We're to exercise in fidelity. We're to be true to Him. To never ever waver. Never do that. But always be true. Always be faithful. Always be exercising fidelity. There's a lot of different distractions that could be encountered in life. And Satan has many, many means by which he can entice and tempt humanity. In fact, I think that's really what the meaning of Paul, uh, Paul's wording is here in verse 3 when he says, But I fear lest by any means, I think he's saying that there are many means. There are many means. Lest by any means, he says. As the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted. Fidelity. Many, many distractions. But all of these distractions, I suppose in a real simple manner of expressing ourselves, we could say they come under two broad classifications. There are, first of all, spiritual distractions. And Paul addresses that here in this passage. Notice how he says it in verse 4. He says there's three possibilities here. As we think about spiritual distractions, he said there could be those who are false teachers, false apostles. He said there could be individuals who would come to you preaching, first of all, another Jesus. And he said there could come individuals among you who would be emphasizing receiving another spirit. And thirdly, he says, or they could be coming, presenting another gospel. You see, those are spiritual distractions. Another Jesus, another spirit, or another gospel. He's telling the Corinthian believers, he's telling them, don't be spiritually distracted. Don't allow yourselves to be spiritually distracted. There's another kind of corruption besides just spiritual corruption. And that is carnal corruption. Carnal corruption. And I'm going to flip to Mark chapter 4 and just would uh, ask you to flip there too if you care to. Mark chapter 4 verse 18. And this is given, the, the, the context here is Jesus giving the parable of the sower who went out to sow. <clears throat> and he says here in this parable that the seed that is sown, this good seed, finds a variety of types of soil. Do you know that as well as I do? It's been emphasized to us even yesterday. There's a variety of soil types that the seed encounters. There's good soil and there's soil that's not so good. But among the conditions that existed as the sower sowed the seed 
was that there was thorny ground. There was some seed sown among thorns. And the Bible says in verse 18, that these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. He specifically mentions three things. I'm going to call them this this morning. He calls them cares and wares and snares. Cares and wares and snares. It's the cares of this world. It's the deceitfulness of riches, the wares you can purchase. And it's the lust of other things entering in which choke the word. That means to, to come into a snare. And he says, those things will, will cause the word to be unfruitful in our lives. The cares, the wares, and the snares that are encountered, and the word becomes unfruitful. You see, those are carnal corruptions. Carnal corruptions. Spiritual corruptions and carnal corruptions. <clears throat> Let me just get a little bit more clear on this. The Bible says in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, and this is the call to God's children, He says, Wherefore, seeing ye also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, see that ye lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And he goes on to tell us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. <clears throat> but I want to jump back into that first verse. And Paul, I'm sorry, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, some people believe it's Paul and some do not. And I have my opinion on that scripture as well. But, but the scripture says there that... that uh, because we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, we are to lay things aside. And he says, one of those things is the sin which does so easily beset us. But let's never forget that in that passage, before he speaks about sin, he says, lay aside every weight. And I think the focus and emphasis there is on things that might not necessarily be sin. Generally and broadly speaking, we are to lay aside every weight. We are to give focus to our Christian race. Lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Lay those things aside. There are things that one individual might partake of or has some interest in at least that would not be a snare to him. Another individual, the same thing, it would be a snare. I think that's what the Apostle is saying when he says, you lay aside the weights. You lay aside those things that will shackle you, that will bog you down. Lay aside every weight and the sandwich that so easily beset us. <clears throat> we must keep things in proper focus. And I, because I'm a man, understand perhaps better the things that become distractions to men. I know as well there are distractions to women. I understand that, but I'm going to speak to the, to the brethren and to the men this morning for a little while as we think about those things that distract us. I'm going to say that, first of all, that occupation can be a weight. 
Occupation can be a distraction. I have found it to be so in my life. And I have found it to be so that I must... There must, there must be proper focus given to the things that are really eternal, the things that are really important, the things that are eternal. And so, I can just share with you that it's been challenging for me to respond with an affirmative answer to the invitation to come and be here with you this morning, this week in Idaho. Because my occupation is an accountant. And you know what happens to accountants at this time of year? They are bogged down with tax returns that are elbow deep, shoulder deep, ceiling deep. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of work that's required of those who are involved in the accounting occupation this time of year. But I decided several years ago that if we're going to really be fruitful, if I'm going to really be fruitful in the service of the Master, I've got to have things in focus. And the Lord's kingdom and the gospel message, the message of salvation, must have priority in my life. I must have allegiance to Him and to His, and His message. And so it becomes us, by times, that we just have to walk away from that. And we're going to have to deal with some of that when we get home. It's going to be very, very challenging. There might be even less sleep awaiting us than what we've enjoyed, or experienced, I should say, rather than enjoyed, the last few days. Because there hasn't been very much. Anyway, give proper focus to your occupation. Now, it's important to be a good steward of the blessings of God. It's important that we, as we are involved in occupations, that that we do our very best. Because we want to remember that we are the Lord's servant. We want to do it heartily as unto the Lord, the things that we do. Well, there's other kinds of distractions too. And before I address those, I want to just give you a bit of an illustration. We have had, because we have girls in our home, daughters, and they're a great blessing, every one of them. We have had through the years many, many kittens that grew up to be cats. And, And I'm not exactly a cat lover. I can tolerate cats. But we had a kitten that grew up to be a cat one time. And it was a tomcat. And this tomcat had a very irritating habit. And that was that when I would go out in the morning and begin to back out of the garage to leave, that tomcat somehow sensed what was going on. And he would come there and he just wanted to get in that garage just, as, just so badly. And cats are okay in their proper place. But I do not like cats in the garage. And so I had to deal with this tomcat. And one day, as I was backing out, I saw in my mirror, I saw this tomcat coming, beginning to come around the corner into the garage. And I stopped and hit the horn, and he stopped. And so I began to back up some more, and he began to watch me with wary eyes. And, and then pretty soon he began to move towards the door, and I hit the horn, and he stopped again. And I got out of the garage, I pushed the, the, the uh, door opener to close the door, and the cat saw the door coming down. He looked at me, and he looked towards the garage, and he started in. I b- hit the horn again, and he stopped. And we had this little game. We did this about four or five or six times, I suppose. He began to move. I hit the horn. He stopped. And, and you know, he got so distracted by the horn that the door got closed before he got in. 
And dear ones, this morning, that illustration is given because, not because of the humor that's there, because the tomcat wanting to get in the garage and how he got distracted, but that illustration is given to us this morning to understand that we can, because of distractions, fail to achieve the things that we really, really want. We can fail to do that. I'm going to give another illustration. I'm thinking about the weights that must be laid aside. The things that distract us, carnal distractions or carnal corruption. This is a personal testimony. And I've done a little bit of that the last few days. And you might think that I'm some saint on the basis of my personal testimony. I want to just take that thought away from you this morning. And I'm going to give you some personal testimony that will reveal that I am not a saint. I'm using that term uh, rather loosely, I guess. I'm I'm using that term to signify that I have not always walked a perfect walk. Now, I am sanctified in Christ Jesus, and in that sense, I am a saint. But I want you to know that I haven't always walked in saintly ways. That's really what I'm trying to say. There were many, many years that I had a distraction in my life. It was a huge distraction. I think Brother Joe mentioned the other day something about professional sports. And I would just broaden that out and say it's not only professional sports, but it could be amateur sports. It could be spectator sports. It could be sports that people participate in that can become a huge distraction. And it was that way for me. I tried to keep it in its proper balance and proper perspective. But it wasn't always kept that way. And finally that had to be dealt with. And it had to be recognized for what it was. This huge distraction that was keeping me from becoming what I could be if I would allow myself to be exercised with the Spirit of God, if that weight could be removed. And so I can stand here this morning and testify that I'm so thankful that 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 weight has been removed. I'm so thankful this morning that that has been taken away. But it wasn't without a great deal of grief. And it wasn't without a great deal of diligence. And it wasn't without recognizing the fact that that is a snare to me that I could very easily be enticed into again. This morning, yesterday afternoon, as we took a man who needed something to eat down to a little walk-in place to get something to eat, we took him there, and, and I saw as we walked in there, this large screen television uh, playing there and displaying and there was a basketball game going on and I, because I know what time of year it is and because my history is, is littered with knowledge of sports I knew what was going on now I don't know the teams that were playing because I didn't watch it that long but as soon as I had gotten him his meal and as I was waiting for the, for the uh, bag to be brought back to the, to the counter and handed to me, I turned my back to that because I knew it was a distraction that I didn't want to be interested in. There are certain things. It might be sports for you. It might be something else for you. Whatever it is, there are certain things that you've just got to be determined you're going to turn your back on it. That's what fidelity means. That's what faithfulness requires. God is calling true men. He's calling true women. And He invites us to enjoy the blessing of fellowship and communion with Him. But we must maintain our focus. We must exercise in fidelity. 
in loyalty and faithfulness to Him. <clears throat> we must say no to compromise. No to compromise. You know, it's, 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 um, it's one thing to say yes to Jesus, but it's something else to say no to the world. And you've got to keep on saying no. You've just got to keep on saying no. You say yes to Jesus, but you say no to the world. And don't ever waver from that expression and that utterance, saying no to the world. We, we've sung this hymn a couple of times the last few days. The hymn about no turning back. No turning back. I'm determined to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back. No turning back. <clears throat> One more scripture before we move away from, from God's uh, jealousy focused on, cha- on, um, on fidelity. That is the scripture given us in Luke 9 verse 62. When he spoke to those individuals whom he had called to be disciples, and they began to make excuse and, and beg leave of him to do other things, And Jesus spoke to those would-be disciples words like this. He said, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. If you put your hand to the plow and you're distracted and you look back lingeringly, longingly for those things that are behind you, Jesus said, You're not fit for the kingdom. You're not fit for the kingdom because you're not an individual who's being faithful, an individual who is focused on fidelity. Quickly, let's move to the third point that we find here in this 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians as we consider the fact that God is jealousy and that God, because He is jealous, wants us to exercise in a way that's pleasing to Him. And that fact, that focus, is the focus on simplicity. God's focus, God's God's jealousy focuses on simplicity. Verse 3 tells us at the end of that verse that there is something referred to as simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. I believe what Paul is saying is that we're not to be entangled. We're not to be entangled. In a way, this is very closely akin to fidelity. But I think there's a distinction that ought to be made here as we think about being focused on simplicity. I'm going to use a a, a couple of scriptures to just amplify what I believe the scripture speaks about when it speaks about simplicity. And these are not exact and precise definitions, but, but they will help us to come to terms with what the Bible means when it speaks about simplicity in Christ. One of those scriptures is found in Romans chapter 8, chapter 12, verse 8. Romans chapter 12, verse 8. There the Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans, and he says, like this, he says, He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. If you'll look at what Paul is saying there, he's telling us that he wants us to give liberally. He wants us to give with liberality. And so I believe this morning that one of the meanings of the word simplicity that we must come to grips with is the fact that simplicity means that we're going to be exercising in liberality. Exercising in liberality. That's the way God wants us to be focused on Him. 
He wants us to be focused on liberality. Simplicity. But liberality in our simplicity. He wants us to give our all. To give everything. To hold nothing back. Not to retain anything. To just give all our heart. All our heart to Him. Focused on liberality. Another emphasis that we find in Scripture, in the New Testament Scripture, as we think about simplicity, is the expression given in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul says, Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. And we'll just turn there and get the rest of that verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, which says, Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation or manner of life in the world and more abundantly to you word. That in simplicity and godly sincerity, he's telling us there, and you'll find it translated this way in other translations, he's telling us that simplicity means holiness. Holiness, not only liberality, but also holiness. That we're to walk in holiness and godly sincerity. That's the kind of conversation or manner of living, manner of life that we are to have. Simplicity calls us to a life of holiness. Finally, in this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I would say that I believe what the Apostle is saying The Apostle is saying here is, as he speaks about the simplicity that is in Christ, he's speaking about sincerity. Sincerity. So liberality, holiness, and sincerity all have to do with the simplicity that is in Christ, as he's emphasizing it here in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Now God is jealous, and God has given to us His Word. And I believe that we ought to be simple, as we understand, as we look at the Word of God. I believe this morning that what the Bible says, we must believe. That's the way I found it. If the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, it's been said. What the Bible says, I believe. The Bible says, going back to the Ten Commandments that were given on Sinai, and I'm going to just focus for a little bit on those first four commandments. The Bible says in commandment number one, No other gods. No other gods. Whatever your god might be, whatever your idol might be, whether it's sports, whether it's romance novels, whatever it is, no other gods, the Bible says. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number two is that we're to make... The the children of Israel were commanded this way, and it pertains to us as well. Make no other gods. Don't make them, and don't bow down to them, and don't serve them. If it's wrong to serve them, it's wrong to make them. If it's wrong to serve them and make them, it's wrong to bow down to them. So if you're bowing down to anything, remember that that is another God in the context of the second commandment. If you're bowing down to anything, that is an idol. And if it's wrong to serve that thing, it's wrong to touch it, to have anything to do with it. Don't make it. You can take this occupationally, if you will. If you're a cabinet maker, you can think about whether or not it's right to make a bar, for example. 
Don't make it, he says. Don't bow down to it. Don't serve it. If it's wrong to be serving, it's wrong to be making. And you can take it to other occupations as well. Accountants. If it's wrong, on my own personal return, tax return, to do something dishonest, it's wrong to do it on somebody else's return, even if they say you got to do it, or they want you to do it. And I don't have that challenge facing me. But some people do. And so when the Bible says in commandment number two, that it's wrong to serve, it's wrong to bow down to, and it's wrong to make. Commandment number three, don't take God's name in vain. Don't ever take God's name in vain. Let's be careful. Let's be reverent as we use the name of God. Let's not resort. And I, Brother Pete, I was thankful yesterday for the way you, you spoke out to that man that was speaking with us and asked him whether he had just taken the name of the Lord in vain. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Never, ever do that. God is jealous. He doesn't want that sort of thing escaping from our lips or even lodging in our hearts. The fourth commandment. Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. Now, nobody really knows today what day is the Sabbath. At least that's the way I understand it. Nobody really knows what day is the Sabbath. Because there's been so many changes to the calendar that, that, that probably that's all been lost and blurred in the annals of history. But the key is, and I think the principle that's given here, is that there's one day out of seven that we ought to consider a day of holiness. We ought to keep the day holy. That means when the hour of worship comes on Sunday morning, we ought to be focused, and we ought to be engaged in simplicity, and we ought to be finding ourselves in the assembly of the, of the saints. We ought to be there in worship. There ought to be nothing that would distract us and prevent us from being in the house of God or where the saints of God are. We ought to be focused, engaged in simplicity as we think about the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. Jesus said the first and great commandment, and he went back to these four commandments, these first four of the ten commandments. He says the first and great commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And what's left? There's nothing left. All your heart, all your, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Everything focused and surrendered to Him. Well, God is jealous. God is jealous. His jealousy, as we think about it, we focus on chastity. We focus on fidelity. We focus on simplicity. It's a blessing to be serving a God who is jealous. It's a blessing that He wants us to recognize that He is jealous. And He wants us to embrace godly jealousy ourselves. Godly jealousy. You know, it's possible to provoke Him. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he asked the question... Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And in the context of what he's saying, it's obvious that it's possible. It's possible for men to provoke God to jealousy. To provoke Him to jealousy. And the context is given there about the communion. And how the communion service is being held. 
So God is jealous. God is jealous. I want to just close with this thought. That this jealous God that we serve has a work that He wants to perform in every life. Every one of you. All of you. God wants to perform a work in your life. He wants to do something in your life. He's jealous over you. If Paul had godly jealousy, it's right for men of God to have godly jealousy. It's right for these brethren to have godly jealousy over you. Those who watch for your souls. It's right for that to happen. But certainly, God is a jealous God. And His work that He wants to perform in you is something that you want to allow to happen. You want that to happen. I just want to give you a benediction before we take our seat and close our comments here this morning. A benediction is found in the 13th chapter of Hebrews. And I'm going to just share that with you as we take our seat. Hebrews chapter 13 Verses 20 and 21. This is the benediction that's given to us here in this passage. Remember that God is jealous and He has a work that He wants to do in your life. Hear the word of Scripture. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 God bless you.